Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 16 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today I talk with Sharon from Los Angeles, California. Sharon started a business called Grief Reiki about five years ago. Reiki is a Japanese healing art which focuses on uh, moving energy throughout the body. By interviewing Sharon, I really wanted to focus on using different modalities that we haven't discussed before while we go through our healing process after the death of our children or even other grief losses. We will certainly suffer many types of grief throughout our lives, and these methods can help in many ways. Thank you so much, Sharon, for agreeing to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. So um, just for my listeners, I actually don't know a whole lot about Sharon. I just kind of found her on Twitter and she found me on Twitter and I felt like we were uh, saying a lot of the same things and I thought it would be just interesting to talk to her and get kind of a different perspective on grief and dealing with grief. Um, so Sharon, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you and kind of what you do and what maybe brought you to where you are today? Oh, absolutely. Um, my background is basically, it's a long story, but... Um, Go for it. It's fine. <laughs> and um, I've been working in corporate America for a very long time. Unfortunately, over a period of time, I had some significant losses um, to initially to suicide within a two-year period. My best oh. friend, fiance. Um, my dad died a few years ago. This year we lost a bunch of, um, you know, family members and, and a dear, dear friend died in October. So, you know, like everybody, we've had significant losses in our life. Mm -hmm. And um, what that did for me, especially losing my best friend, Joy, and then my former fiance, John, is just kind of threw me into that place of grief that I had never been into before. Mm -hmm know what to do. I mean, I felt lost. I felt like I was in some parallel universe. And, and I'm, I'm actually a cybersecurity engineer by trade. So I have a very analytical mind. And I thought, well, I'll just read a book and yes. I'll better. And that didn't quite work for me. And I thought after Joy died, you know, I'll just um, think my way through it and I'll follow the five, you know, the five steps. Mm -hmm. Five steps of grieving, right. Exactly, and all of that, and I it just didn't get that much better. Um, I threw myself into work. I became a workaholic. I think thinking, you know, that old adage, keep busy. Um, if I keep busy, you know, and I come out the other side, my grief will kind of mysteriously or magically disappear. Mm -hmm. well, and then John died, and it was like, okay, this this isn't going to work, right? I need something more. So I I turned to the grief recovery method, actually, just 
because it came up at the top of the Google search. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, this is interesting. I would like to learn how to do better. So I went through their, their intensive two-day course, and I came out the other end feeling like a different person. I also joined a lost after suicide support group here in Los Angeles and had the opportunity to talk about my grief before where I didn't previously because no one would talk to me. And then when mm -hmm. you start writing it into it, you kind of become that persona non grata, right? Where yeah. people don't want to talk to you when you've had a death um, that's close to you, but then they certainly don't want to talk to you if there was a suicide involved. Mm -hmm. So not knowing how to deal with both of those things, joined a um, wonderful group here in Los Angeles for suicide loss survivors and could actually talk about my grief. So mm -hmm. anyway, long story short, after that, I realized that my life wasn't working very well and that mm -hmm. I had to change something. It's sort of one of the things that loss does is it brings life into perspective. Mm -hmm. I realized yeah. Corporate America didn't work for me. So anyway, I formed this company called Grief Reiki. I didn't really know what that was going to be, but I hit the button and said, yep, this is what I'm going to do. And for the last four, almost five years now, I've basically been kind of formulating it. And that's, you know, a, a, an approach to grieving that addresses the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual components of loss, because you can't just fix your emotions and be fine if you're not taking care of yourself um, physically and spiritually as well. So grief Reiki came out of that. And I use the Japanese healing modality of Reiki um, as one of the tools in my toolbox um, to help me get through and move through the, the losses um, and kind of come out the other side in one piece, not really understanding how I did that until after um, you know, a significant number of years had, had passed by. Mm -hmm. So kind of the background of where Grief Reiki came from and where, um, you know, my loss history, I guess, and, and how it's influenced me and kind of looking at life from a different perspective. Well, I think you hit the nail right on the head when you said that there are certain types of grief that are more taboo to talk about. And those I think are a hundred percent suicide and kids that die <laughs> because no one want, knows how to deal with that. You know how to deal with the natural order of your 80 year old parents died. People can get that and understand that and feel like they can relate to that and maybe know what to say. But when it's suicide, it's entirely different because they just feel like, oh, I just can't talk to you about it. I can't bring it up. It just oh, feels exactly. like that. And the same way with kids. If your kids die, no one wants to ever think about either of those things happening to them, either a loved one dying by suicide or their child dying. Those are like two things that like it cannot happen, right? If, if it can happen to you, that means it can happen to me. So I just don't even want to talk about it and don't want to think about it and don't want to deal with it. So they're yeah. very taboo subjects. I think you're absolutely right. And, and because of that, you know, the griever, I know I felt completely isolated because mm -hmm. people wouldn't even say Joy's name. They wouldn't even say John's name. And, you know, you kind of want to talk about it and make sense. And then, I, I mean, I had my grandparents die, like you said, and it's kind of like that expected thing. But mm -hmm. somebody that close to you that dies in a way that you don't understand. And I think, 
even spiritually, I was raised Catholic. And, you know, even though I'm not the best practicing Catholic, I'm more spiritual than I am religious. You know, I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I've yeah. been taught that she's going to hell. And like, uh-huh. why is she? And it's like, there's all these things that you just don't know what to grapple with and no one will talk to you. And so you feel completely alone and isolated and wrapped up in your own thoughts, which aren't necessarily always the best. Yeah. Oh, I know. And you do tend to feel like you want to just isolate yourself and hide a little bit. One, because no one wants to really talk to you anyway. And secondly, then you think, well, I'm kind of a downer to everyone else too. If I go out in public and I start talking, like you start talking about joy, then everybody gets uncomfortable and no one's having fun anymore and all of that. So it it goes twofold, really. Absolutely, because I think for most people, and I think our society over time has been taught not to deal with grief and just to kind of push it down Mm -hmm. and pretend to be strong and and not burden, like you said very well, not burden other people with what we're going through. You know, we just tend to suck it up. And that was one of the things I did. And, you know, I went to work, I stayed, I worked on the weekends, I worked 12 hours a day and, you know, sucked it up, so to speak. But as I was sucking it up, you know, it's affected me emotionally because I'm not dealing with the grief and the loss. It's affecting me physically. Uh You know, my chest felt like I was going to die. I mean, I was starting to have heart palpitations and and chest pains. And then, you know, you think, oh my God, you know, why would this happen? I, I don't get it. You can't wrap your mind around what has happened to this person now. Where are they? At least for me, being a Catholic, like, you know, where did, where is she? Where, where did he, where did he go? Is he in some horrible place now because of the fact that they had this illness, mental health illness that they could deal with, you know, and you just don't know what to do. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Not only do people isolate you, but then you start to self-isolate yes. as a protection. Yes. And you have that old adage, time will heal, which is completely untrue. If, if you don't work at it and try to heal, time itself does nothing. I mean, you can just yeah. stuff it away and 20 years later feel horrible. I've actually had a lot of parents reach out who lost their children years and years ago and have realized they just stuffed it away and never dealt with it. And that healing has, had not even yet begun. And yeah, so you're now bringing it back up and starting to address it is still really important and really key. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And I think one of the things that I saw um, that really had an impact on me in my suicide loss survivors support group is there was a woman in there who, and I'm, you know, I'm certainly not comparing, I'm not, you know, analyzing or judging her in any way, but I remember her saying, my mother died from by suicide 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is probably the hundredth support group that I've been to. And for me, I was thinking, you know, I don't know that I want to be in a support group for years. I I want to get past this. And so what can I do? What actions can I take? I know my losses are going to be with me forever, um, but what actions can I take that are going to help me to live life again? And you know, it took me from, you know, Joy died in October and I used to see, you know, it was right when all the holiday stuff was coming out the end of October. And I remember walking into a store and it was like Joy and, you know, ornaments and Joy this. And I couldn't even deal with seeing her name, you know, at Christmas time. So oh, totally- yes. 
But now it's kind of like I walk in and I see her name and on the, all the ornaments and everything has joy on it at, at the holidays. And it just, it makes me smile. So I'm so thankful that I took the actions to get through the painful parts of it. But the sadness and the, and the grief, I think, is always with us. But you don't have to live in pain. And I think that's the important point, right? Is yes. that if we take actions, um, we can let let go of that pain and move through it. Well, I know for me going to my first support group, the, one of the facilitators said, I didn't feel like myself for the first nine years. And that terrified me. I was so scared. I thought I can't live like this for nine years. You know, I was three weeks from Andy's death and the idea of living like that for nine years was so horrifying. So I'm sure you going to that support group and having that her say, I've been to a hundred support group in 25 years. Wow, that had to have scared you half to death. It terrified me. And, and because you can't describe to people, at least I couldn't, how I was feeling. I just know, like you said, I wasn't myself. I mean, mm-hmm. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. I don't know why I was working so many hours. I, I don't even know if I was productive. Um, that parallel universe, you know, that emotional roller coaster. And I'm thinking, what, another 25 years? I, I'm yeah. not sure about that. And, you know, and I think the other point is, you know, we don't wish loss in life on anybody of this magnitude, but you have no guarantees, right? And so for me, as I get older, you know, I live with my 86-year-old mom, you know, my dad died a few years ago, he was also living here, so it was kind of interesting living with my parents again, but, you know, loss is going to be a part of my life moving forward, my parents' generation, my friends, you know, who knows, and so if I don't get those tools to help me, you know, be able to handle the impending deaths that are going to be a part of my life, you know, from this point forward, you know, I will be in those, in that place for the next however many years. And it just is a scary thought. Yeah, it is. It's terrifying. Uh Yeah. And I think knowing what works for you, because grief is unique to every person and loss is unique. And there's so many different losses. That's one of the things as a grief educator, I learned is that, you know, the intensity of your loss really relates to the love that you had for that person. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it also has to do with things like moving. I mean, I lived in Virginia. I was born and raised in California, but I lived in Virginia for 10 years. And I came home because my parents were getting older. But leaving Virginia, oh my goodness, I grieved. And I didn't even realize until I started learning more about grief that there are so many things in life that that are losses that you can grieve for. So combine all of those losses, if you haven't dealt with them, with a significant loss of a loved one, and it's just magnified by a million percent. So being able to recognize that as as we move through life is really important, and honoring each of those loss events as something that's meaningful for you is rather than pushing it down and trying to ignore it like I, I did for a long time, is so important. Yeah, it is interesting. After you suffer a huge loss such as this, you do think about grief in an entirely different way. And I feel myself just understanding those different capacities of grief, like you say, and different things that you grieve, um, that it's not always death. 
uh, not at all, that there are other huge, huge losses and the grief can feel very similar. Well, yeah, and not dealing with it. I mean, grief is cumulative. So the longer and the more that you stuff it down, the more likely it is to kind of just burst open one day. And, and not only will you be mourning for that particular loss that you're going through, but every loss that you've ever gone through within your life will all come rushing forward at the same time. And, you know, that's a scary kind of thing to go through because it does feel overwhelming and overpowering. And it's kind of like, I don't think I'll ever get out of it. I have clients that will say, how long will this last? And it's like, I wished I could say because yeah. everything's different. I mean, I went through three or four years of heavy duty grieving before I even decided to do anything. Once I decided to do something about it, my life changed in a positive way. But if I hadn't decided to do something, I mean, I would probably still in the, be in the same boat and Joy died 10 years ago this year. Wow. So, you know, you really can't put any time frame on it because everybody's different. Some people choose the actions that are meaningful to them in order to move through it. Other people get stuck. I mean, it's very difficult to predict how it's all going to end up. So having those tools in your toolbox and those places that you can go, whether it's Twitter where you can share your story or whether it's a support group or a dear friend. Sometimes it's not family. Sometimes it is family. It just depends. But knowing where you can go and what you can do when these things happen is just so important. You are right when you say that grief can kind of bring up old things that you haven't dealt with. I know for me, that was the case when I um, started to go see my therapist after Andy's death we really ended up talking quite a bit about my mom's death when I was in college because, you know, I was busy in college. It was my junior year halfway through. I was getting ready to take all these exams and very hard classes to try to get into medical school. And, you know, I was alone kind of at college. That next summer, my dad ended up remarrying and moving to Colorado. My brother moved out to Nevada and I was like just there in Iowa spending some time with my grandparents, but really feeling pretty alone. Um, and then starting medical school and I just kept myself busy and I think tried not to deal with it too much because I really didn't have anybody close by or even close to me that I felt like I could really talk to about it. I have an aunt out in Nevada that I used to talk to on the phone quite a bit, but otherwise it's hard because I move, I make all new friends, right? They don't know me. They've never met my mother. They don't know this loss. My brother's young, young, trying to start a new life. My dad has moved and starting a new life. So it kind of left me feeling pretty isolated there. And I didn't realize how much I had not healed until... Andy's death happened. And then it kind of hit me. And my therapist said, well, you really didn't grieve your mother well. You didn't Mm -hmm. grieve that loss well. And so we're going to have to deal with more than just the loss of Andy, which is huge. That is the biggest thing I could ever imagine. But having that coupled with other things that I didn't really do right 20 years ago was not good. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right on the mark with that. And I think one of the things I learned, and this is why I appreciate the grief education course that I took, was that because loss is cumulative, you kind of have to go back in your memory banks. And they have us do this thing called a loss history graph. And basically you map out, like you go back to what was your very first loss that you can remember back as a, as a child. And uh, one of the examples that somebody gave was they left a coat that their father had bought them at the park. And when they got home without it, you know, this is in the days where your kids could go up to the park by themselves and you weren't following them around like crazy. But the father was just so upset that this loss of this coat because they didn't have much money as a family and that just stuck in you know this person's head and so when you go back and you know I plotted out all my losses over the years and you visually look at you know okay well we moved here's all the times mm-hmm. we moved here's the times that we lost a pet here's the times that my you know my grandparents died or or whatever and you put it all together and you think oh my goodness, how did I deal with them? And then you find out that maybe you didn't. And so how do you go back to those losses, kind of relive them and then let them go so that you can deal with the loss that's right in front of you, right? Mm -hmm. When I was a teenager, both of my parents got cancer. My grandmother died of cancer. We moved a lot growing up. So I did have a lot of losses and some tough things to go through when you're young. And I guess in my mind, I kind of thought that was going to be it for me. Kind of like, yep, I've done all the cruddy stuff. All this bad stuff has happened to me. And now things are good, right? Now I'm married to a husband that I love. I have three beautiful children. I took in a foster son. I have career as a pediatrician. I'm good now. And I have done the bad stuff. And the bad stuff, I've had my share. So it's not going to come back. And so then when it does, and so full on horrible... Yeah, it just changed changed everything because I kind of thought I've done it all. I've dealt with it. Nothing else really can shock me or can get me to my core. Yeah, right. I was wrong. <laughs> I know. And it's kind of like I think that's the whole, well, the whole thing about loss is that you think you have control in some way, right? Like you said, oh, I've been through all my losses and, you know, I kind of got it done early in my life. And so the rest of my life will be peaceful or I won't have the same kinds of losses to deal with. And like you said, you know, there's, there's no guarantee on anything. So when you look back at it and you, you line it all up, and that's why I said this lost history graph is so powerful for me, it's like it forced me to think about like, wow, you know, and I didn't think about it today, but during that time, that was a big deal for me. And was I given the tools? Did my parents talk to me about what was going on? And so you take all of that and you said you have three kids, but I have three children as well. And it's like, well, how do I talk to them about it mm-hmm. so that? They don't carry that kind of not so good way of dealing with grief like I did. They don't carry that through their life, that they have a healthy way of dealing about it, that they know that they can come to me. I mean, we didn't sit down at the dinner table with my parents and talk about any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So if nothing else, it sort of helps you as a parent to figure out what not to do so that the ch- your children moving forward have these healthy ways of being able to deal with grief. And it seems like to me, the generations younger than me are more open to talking about this kind of stuff. And I think that's a positive. I know my generation, my parents' generation, it's not a conversation unless we change that. Well, and I think I did a pretty bad job with my kids only because things were so challenging and tough for me in my childhood that I just wanted to protect them. I I hope that I can do a better job now for them and being there for them and supporting them so they will be able to cope and not just shove it away. But it's a challenge and you have to do the best you can, which some days I feel like is terrible and other days I feel like it's okay. So you're grieving as well, right? Mm -hmm. You're going through our own grief and yet you know you're also trying to I don't want to be say be a role model but just show them that I have emotions that I can be sad and you hear so many people say well I never saw my parents cry my kids have seen me cry they know I mean we've cried together and so it's kind of like yeah there's going to be days where you don't hit the nail on the head just because you can't emotionally, physically, or spiritually deal with it yourself. And that's completely human and understandable. But when there are opportunities to sit down and talk about it, now I recognize that. I didn't before because that's not how I grew up. I grew up where you just didn't deal with it, period. Now that I recognize that not dealing with it didn't help me in any way, you know, you do your best, like you said. We're all human. We have our good days and bad days, but we do our best to make sure that our children understand that you know grief and loss is a natural part of life you know mm-hmm. not everything's perfect your team's not always going to win you're always going to get into the best school you're always going to have all of these things and so loss is inevitable and so you need to be able to deal with the fact that that loss is happening in your life yeah and grief is the result of great love too. Like you said earlier, it you don't have grief unless you have that great love. So I want now for you to talk a little bit about Reiki, something that I just didn't know much about at all, still don't really. So explain it to me and explain it to the listeners. Sure. Um, Reiki is a Japanese healing modality that helps with relaxation. And so in the early days when I, I worked in Washington, D.C. for quite a while. And, you know, the the level of intensity there is, you know, by our political climate right now is pretty high. And so there was a lot of stress in my job. My boss was a presidential appointee. We worked all the time and it's like, I need some way to relax. And so one day I was in a coffee shop and I saw this card that said, you know, learn to relax, <laughs> reduce your stress. And I thought, ah, I need that. And mm-hmm. so no idea where I was going or what it was. And I called up, made an appointment and I got my first Reiki treatment or Reiki session. And it was so peaceful that I left there feeling like this weight of stress that I'd been carrying with me, it just magically disappeared. And I had no idea why. So being an engineer and having that kind of scientific background, I went, I looked it up and I read about it. And basically what it is, is everything's made up of energy. We talk about it. Quantum physics talks about it. Our bodies are certainly made up of energy. And as a physician, I'm sure you understand that better than anybody. And when the energy, if you've got something going on in your life, you know, 
energy can get stuck. It can get stuck in your body in different ways and it can manifest in different sorts of physical ailments. Mm -hmm. As a result of my work schedule, I was starting to get headaches and chest pains and all of this stuff. And what Reiki does is the practitioner uses the energy that's in the universe to help move the energy in my body and get it unstuck. And so that might sound a little bit woo-woo, but um, as an engineer, I thought, well, I don't care if it's woo-woo. And so I started to train and learn about it. And there's three levels in Reiki. The first level is learning how to heal yourself. And I thought, well, if I'm stressed, I need to find a way to heal myself. And so that way I can do this work on myself after I get off my job. You know, I can go work out and maybe do some Reiki. And what I found is it helped helped me to sleep better. It helped to calm me down. I didn't understand how it worked. I just knew I felt better. And so what happened was I continued to train. And as I experienced these losses, I naturally went back to my self-reiki practices, besides other things like trying to eat healthy, making sure I got outside. Grief is such an energy depleting emotion that if you continue to allow your body, mind, and soul to be depleted of energy, I mean, you're, you're you're going to get sick. You're going to not be able to function. And really grief is one of those emotions that you need stamina for. So however you replenish your energy, like I said, walking outside is a good way to do that. Um, even if it's for two minutes when you're grieving is very important. So I found for me that using the tools and techniques I learned as a Reiki practitioner, and it's a, you know, it's something that came, it, the laying of hands has been around for a very long time. There are many modalities that use energy work. There's Tai Chi, there's yoga, there's acupuncture. Reiki is just another one of those tools. Healing touch is a tool that's used in hospitals. Um, Reiki is coming into hospitals as well. It works on pain. It works on stress relief. It, you know, it helps you sleep, all these kinds of things. So anyway, Reiki training taught me that I can actually keep the energy moving in my body rather than it shutting down. And what I found was for me, and especially with people who are grieving, that energy gets stuck in your heart, right? Your heart energy center. It just sits there. It's like you're broken, you're battered, you're grieving, and the energy just sits there. And, and your heart energy center is the one that really balances your whole body. And so if it shuts down, then other things start to shut down. And so what I found was if I could just find ways to keep the energy in my body moving, I felt better. I had more stamina. I mean, I didn't have a lot of stamina, but I had more stamina than I would have if I hadn't done Reiki or walk. But I didn't realize until after the grieving was kind of at a place where you come out of that fog and you're like, oh, I kind of feel a little bit more like myself again. And I thought, well, how is that possible? What did I do? And I just looked back on it and I thought, yeah, I, I practice this modality that I had learned. The Japanese, it's a lifestyle for the Japanese. And, and when you look at how well they do, right, culturally, they live longer than we do. They're probably healthier than we are. I mean, this is one of the things that they do on a daily basis besides other things like Tai Chi and and 
and Qigong and, and whatever. Well, maybe there was something to it. And so I just started to think about how Reiki affected me and how it kind of kept me in a place where I stayed healthy. I didn't have the heart attack like I felt like I was going to have, all of those other things. And so it's, it's something that wasn't looked upon, I think, over the last 20 years as being culturally acceptable. Mm-hmm. Then again, you know, as a scientist, engineer, you, you know that there's quantum physics. You know that energy is all around us. You know, so why can't I move the energy in my body so that I feel better? And so the more I learned and the more I practiced, I just realized that it was something that a griever could do as well. And it may not, it, it doesn't take your grief away, but if you can't function while you're grieving, you're not going to do very well. And I found that Reiki helped me to, like you said, sleep better. It gave me a lot more energy when I needed it. And that gave me the stamina I needed to deal with those tough emotions because otherwise I'd still be in bed. Well, and there is a huge um, tie between the mind and the body. Being brought up in obviously a Western medicine tradition and Western medicine training, it is very much focused on the physiological, all the biochemistry and not really focusing nearly as much on the mind and the importance of the mind. I can see that part of it for sure. You know, that, that energy thing is, a, is tougher to get your head wrapped around. It is. My son's in med school. And so, you know, now that he's in med school, he's definitely all about the facts. For me, having a corporate kind of scientific background, I can kind of, or engineering background, I can kind of get that for sure. And so it's very difficult to explain to most people, but I think mm-hmm. part of it is giving them the experience of actually receiving it. And I had no understanding about it at all when I took my first session. And from that, all I knew is that I felt better. And I think that's why Reiki, again, like other healing modalities, like, you know, healing touch and therapeutic touch and whatever, have gained traction. They're not supposed to replace traditional medicine, but they're there to complement it. And I know out here in Los Angeles, many, 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 including Cedar sinai as part of their integrative, you know, medicine departments, practice Reiki on their patients. I've been in hospitals and given Reiki pre-surgery, post-surgery, cancer patients. I've worked in hospice. I know that um, when my dad was dying, I used, you know, just Reiki on him, not knowing if or what it would do, but it seemed to relax him as he was transitioning. So, you know. And Western medicine just can't explain everything. I, I know just yesterday I was talking with my trainer about Reiki a little bit because I just knew nothing about it. And he said he was friends with a physical therapist who now uses it. And so is totally trained in Western medicine, but now does on top of regular physical therapy, a Reiki too. And she just felt like it was done to her and it was just amazing. And what's funny is that one of the first times he had actually ever met her. They were at a conference together and she had her hand out just not touching him, but over the small of his back. And she looked at him and said, what did you do to your back? Mm. And he said, I just had surgery on my back about three months ago. And she knew that she could like tell that just from having her hand over his back. He said, freakiest thing ever that I have no idea how it works, but it really seems to work. So sometimes you just don't understand things and you need to just accept it anyway. I mean, it's, it's like faith, right? You have your, your Christian faith. You can't 
explain rationally to a lot of people, but you just have to take it and just accept it. Well, and I think the fact that it's been around, you know, like for a long, 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 long time, you know, you Mm -hmm. hear long before the Japanese brought this to America back in the early 1900s. I mean, it's been practiced around the world with a bunch of different names. Like I said, there's, you know, the Chinese and Qigong and, and all of that. So it's not new. It's something that has been there. And it's just, like you said, hard to wrap your head around it. And I can't explain it. I, I can put my hands like her. I can put my hands on somebody and tell them where the energy is blocked in their body and say, you know, have you been having stomach problems or, you know, do you get a lot of headaches or whatever? And it, once you figure out where the energy is blocked, you know, then we can, we can get it moving again and they can say, well, you know, my headache is gone now or whatever. And I'm not saying it's all a miraculous thing or whatever. There's, I, it just energetically, I think, things do get stuck in our bodies and because we hold on to it it's just something that you can't explain to people they just have to experience it I think that's the only way um, for folks who aren't familiar with it is to you know go have a session and see how you feel after you have the session it's another tool that you can use and like I said for me when I was grieving just putting my hands over my heart and letting energy move through my heart rather than that wall that we build up like I'm going to protect myself I'm not going to cry and mm-hmm. I Reiki tends to bring those emotions out and um, the biggest relief for me because I'm not a good sleeper is that it allowed me to sleep otherwise I was up all night and I yeah that same story you know I, I told you that physical therapist when she said I guess with her very first treatment that she had she was just laying there. No one had touched her, nothing. And she just started sobbing uncontrollably. Had mm-hmm. no idea why. None. I went through the same thing for my very first session. And I think it was all the stress of my job and all the stress of traveling. It just like all bubbled up to the surface. And she you can have hands on. It's a very light touch. The practitioner starts at your head and sort of touches lightly around your body. In most places, it can be hands off. And she had just put her hands, you know, on my head. And it was like, everything just kind of poured out. I had no control over it. I was kind of like, whoa, how did that happen? But obviously... I needed to get it out. And so it was a safe way to do that. I would recommend to your listeners and, and maybe even to you to experience it, try it, just to see how it affects you. Because um, it's hard to explain to people unless you've actually had the experience. Yeah, I, I guess. I really can't even imagine it myself. So I suppose this is something that's offered all over. I've never looked into it myself, so I don't even know. Yeah, it is everywhere. In fact, um, you can, if you go to my website, uh, grief-reiki.com, I have a list on my grief reiki page of various associations around the world. And you can look up practitioners in your area that provide Reiki sessions here in Los Angeles. It's like everybody does Reiki, which is interesting. I think that there are enough recognized organizations. I belong to some of those professional organizations as well, because there are codes of ethics and training and and stuff that we have to have. So it's not just, you know, you go online and then you get a certificate kind of thing. But I mean, I spent lots and lots of hours of practicing under a, a certified Reiki master, but um, yeah, and you can look it up and you can find one in your area. And even if you look for Reiki practitioner to Google, I'm sure there'll be a whole list of people that come up at clients all over the country, find 
folks in their area in the middle of Wisconsin or, you know, in the middle of nowhere, um, they find that there is somebody who has a, a Reiki practice out of their home. Um, so they're all over the place. And, you know, you can also get them, like we said, through the hospitals. I mean, there's, I think, a hundred, let me say North America, because that includes Canada. I don't want to misquote on the number, but most of the major hospitals in the United States practice Reiki. Cleveland Clinic, um, Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, um, New York Presbyterian, um, Cedar Sinai out here. Many of the major hospitals um, do have ways to receive Reiki. So even checking out through a hospital um, program, their integrative medicine program, they offer it to the community. So that's another way. Uh, to look for a Reiki or find a Reiki practitioner. Maybe it's, you feel more confident because it's coming through hospital channels. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and, and I think too, there is just this um, feeling that if you do something like this, that it's somehow anti-regular Western medicine, which you've said is definitely not the case. You can definitely integrate the two together or for people who are of a Christian faith or another faith, like it's somehow wrong and against your faith. And I think it's, that's not the case at all. This is just a totally different modality. Um, exactly. And, you know, like I said, I'm Catholic. And so when people say, well, it's against my religious beliefs, it's like, well, when I'm doing Reiki, I bring the angels into it, you know, it's, it's a very, it's almost like you're praying for the person. I mean, right. it's whatever it is, I've never felt that it's against anything, although the Catholic church may not be a proponent, and I don't think there's a lot of Reiki in, in the Catholic hospitals around the country, but that said, for me personally, you know, the spiritual part of my life is very important, and I feel that it just augments it when I, when I share Reiki with somebody, because I do bring in the healing angels, you know, Archangel Raphael, and, and, and whoever, I just say, you know, please surround this person and provide them healing at where they need it, and so it's a very loving, gentle, spiritual, but not religious kind of modality that you can use, so you're right, though. People and, but God does work in in many different ways, right? And so it's to limit things and to limit the way that you can receive help. It's not great either. God can help you spiritually and God can help you spiritually in this way too. I think when you open your mind up to heal and if you go into this certainly prayerfully, I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. <laughs> Not at all. I think it sounds cool. It has been cool. And like I said, I never, ever, ever would have gone on the computer and said, oh, I want to learn more about Reiki. I had no idea that it even existed until I needed something to help me be stressed from my stressful job. And that, you know, again, I was led to that business card in that coffee shop, I believe. And I called the number and kind of like the rest is history. So from my mind, set, I never would have even thought that this was possible because of my corporate engineering background. But having experienced it, it yeah. it's, yeah, you just, you just never know, right? Mm -hmm. I know a couple of years ago, but this is before Andy died, I went to a pediatric conference and they had a guy there who does hypnosis and mm -hmm. ah, blew me away. I mean, I left that conference thinking, 
I need to learn how to do this. I need to go and become certified to do hypnosis on kids in my office because it was amazing what they could do and how powerful the mind is. And people who use hypnosis for kids and will totally make their arm feel completely numb so they can get IVs put in and blood drawn and all this stuff and they don't feel it at all because the, the mind is so, so powerful that they don't even have to use like a numbing medicine or anything like that before these kids get their blood drawn now. This is just kind of an expansion of that and some of those same types of things. You're right. And I think there's so much out there. I mean, I wasn't looking for it. It found me. And then now that I do this kind of work, you know, you, you get exposed to all these other different things that are available. I mean, sound healing. Um, I have friends who've had very traumatic grief and loss in their life, you know, and they have some PTSD and they swear by the EMDR and I can't mm-hmm. remember. I've done that. I do that for my yeah. PTSD after the accident. Mm-hmm. Has, has been instrumental in their healing from their loss and their trauma. And so, you know, we, we have this thing in our mind that, well, I can only heal. I know my parents' generation, well, I can only heal if I get a pill, um, you know, knowing that there are so many things out there, you know, making sure, first of all, that you get reputable, you know, folks doing this and and all that, but that there's so many different things and and finding those things and putting them in your toolbox so that you can, you know, you can reach out to that when you end up being in a situation where a loss appears again in your life. And so, yeah, it's like never say never. I mean, so many friends love that that that's really helped or acupressure or reflexology. I mean, you can go on and on and on, but EMDR has been huge for a lot of my clients and a lot of my good friends who've had very traumatic losses in their Mm -hmm. lives. Oh, yeah. It was certainly very, very helpful to me. I mean, the PTSD after the accident, so hard. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. to be able to kind of, um, make those emotions be not so acute with those triggers was really big. So it kind of like puts you into that place where you see this in a kind of maybe- A little more detached way than what you experience it otherwise. Mm -hmm. Everybody that I know that's been through it, especially for a grieving situation that was very traumatic has been just, they can't say enough things, nice things about how that changed them. Well, it's very, very helpful. But I'm excited to hear more about this Reiki. This was something I certainly didn't know anything about. So what is your your practice like for people that are in the LA area? Um, I have a couple things that I do. I, I mainly focus on grievers. And so I use Reiki to really help them um, you know, move through their grief and I give them tools that they can use that are very simple. I mean, we all, you know, energy is everywhere. You don't necessarily have to be a Reiki practitioner in order to, we all have the ability, I guess, to do this. And so, you know, giving them some very simple tools because obviously complicated stuff when you're grieving doesn't work, you know, your brain, your head around it. And most of the time you can't remember it. And so what are some very simple things that you can do, you know, while you're grieving to help you from an energetic perspective and focus on that. I do a lot of grief education as well, because I found that one of the things that I didn't know is the five stages don't really 
work. But yeah, <laughs> I don't it, like those at all. <laughs> don't. And there's like this whole parallel universe and am I normal? And I mean, I'm just trying to read books and say, you know, am I where I'm supposed to be? And there isn't a where you're supposed to be. No, you are right. Thank right. you for saying that. So giving every, giving, you know, clients the ability to understand grief, what it means and that the things we've all been taught are completely wrong. And so- I And think they're not that, crazy. Yeah, and when you realize that, it lifts this weight off your shoulder. I mean, I kept focusing on, okay, am I in the right stage? Where should I be? And when I let go of all of that and just allowed myself to be where I was at that moment, it just changed everything. So grief education is for me. And the other thing that I, I like to do, but I haven't been able to do it as much, is I'm also a death midwife. And that gives me an opportunity and my, through my training to help people prepare for death because grief and death go together. And I think one of the reasons why we don't deal with grief well is because we don't deal with death very well, right? We don't talk, we definitely don't talk about that around the dinner table. And I think people, especially my generation, you know, aren't prepared. My parents did pretty good, um, but there are still things that, you know, my mom doesn't want to talk about. So I think understanding that and being able to help people prepare for death, having their not only emotionally prepare, but also getting their their things in order. I don't know how many people I know who don't have wills and, and haven't even thought about, you know, advanced directives or what do you want when you die, you know, and, and preparing that is not a morbid thing. It's just a part of life. Being able to work as the death midwife and then part of being a death midwife is also a death doula as we sit, you know, with somebody as they're dying and help to kind of walk them through that transition. And then afterwards, if you choose, um, I have not chosen to do this yet, but we have the opportunity to do home funerals, you know, help the family um, create a memorial that's important to them. And then obviously the grief counseling that comes after, right? after somebody. Mm -hmm. That's been, I think when my dad died, it kind of shifted me into that direction and realizing that because, and I'm probably significantly older than you, but because there are no discussions on this, that there's such a, a disparity or just such this lack of people knowing what to do. And I find that my friends, they gravitate to me because they're like, all right, I have a book. Here's this the things that you should be doing to get your, your effects in order. And people just aren't willing to tell people they're not prepared. And so giving them a safe space to say, okay, now have you thought about this? What about your quality of life at the end of life? How do you want to live the end of your life? My, my dear friend, Joanne, who just died in October, she had stage four cancer and she made the decision that she wasn't going to get any more treatment and you know everyone's like oh my god you have to get and she's yeah, like no. you've given up yeah and she's kind of like no I just want to feel I just want to let go and transition in a way that's peaceful for me and that's what she did surrounded by friends and family and, and people who loved her and she just allowed herself to let go and you know I, I think how courageous and I, I just admire that she could do that, um, but such a different end than so many people do. So having that conversation, how do you want your end to be? I mean, I personally don't want to be in the hospital. 
hospital in the ICU. I would rather be at home or I'd rather be on the hill somewhere taking a happy pill. I don't know. But anyway, so part of my, you know, my function here with this company has just kind of been to explore all of that and be there for people who are going through all of these different experiences in our lives. And because now I'm not afraid to talk about grief and loss and suicide and death, it gives other people who can't talk about it with their families or who can't talk about it with their children or at work or whatever, um, a place to come and experience and have the ability to have those conversations. And, and that's just, I don't know. People think it's depressing, maybe, but it just no. makes it just it's makes me had some ability to to have those conversations with people because they're so important. I just see it happening, and I'm sure you do too, over and over again. Where you know it's just not talked about. Well, I think back even to when my grandmother died. I was 15 years old, and she had cancer for a long time. When it did get towards the end, she had a notebook, and she had written down she had three diamonds. She had a diamond pendant, her diamond wedding ring, and diamond earrings. And she had two daughters and a daughter-in-law. And so she wanted to know who wanted which thing. And then she had three rings and she had three granddaughters. And she wanted to know which of us wanted which thing. Only my one aunt, the one aunt that I talked to after my mom died, she was the only one that told her which diamond that she wanted. None of the rest of us would do it. You know, I remember my grandma with her notebook asking me, Marcy, which of my rings do you want? And I said, oh, grandma, they're all so pretty. Don't let's not talk about that right now. Because mm -hmm. I didn't want to talk about it. Because I didn't want to think about the fact that she was going to die very soon. And she knew she was, but, and we all kind of knew she was, but why did none of us want to answer her question? That's, mm -hmm. it, was, it was not good for her because she really was wanting to prepare and have everything set out. And she had the little notebook. I can see it in my mind today, this many years later. And I also was thinking about you talking about getting ready for death and preparing for death. And then even when you feel like you do that okay, still after the actual death, you're not always ready. Right. Um, I mean, my friend Stephanie talked about that, that they went to counseling. They had all this stuff. They felt like they were all ready when Kian was going to die. And then Kian died and they realized they weren't at all. So um, even though you kind of try to do the best you can, sometimes it doesn't work either. And you still have to do a ton of work after that death happens. Exactly. And I think the intensity, like we said earlier, kind of correlates to the intensity of your grief and it correlates to the intensity of the love you had for somebody. And there's no description or preparation for something. I mean, you know, Joy died. I felt like my soul had been, I mean, we were best friends. We talked every day. And even though she wasn't my sister, but no blood relative, I felt like she was one of my family members. And mm -hmm. it felt like somebody reached in and grabbed my soul and pulled it out and then drove a 25 ton truck back and forth over it. I mean, there were no words to describe how you were feeling so you couldn't even prepare for that and no. you're, you're absolutely right I think putting things in place and the biggest problems I see for people who come in for grief is the family dynamic after somebody has died and the unfortunate problems that it may cause because there was no conversation the more that we can do to put things into place prior to something happening I mean I talk to my kids I have a death file right and my death file is all my insurance and what I wanted my 
if I do, if, no, I'm not sure yet, but I kind of wanted to be planted in a tree, as a tree, and all these things, right, and the kind of music, and whatever, but I have that all on my desk, I have a copy of my driver's license, and I, when my kids are older, they're um, 25, 27, and 37, and I pull out, I'm like, death file and they're like mom we don't want to talk about this my death file and we sit down and I go through it and I'm like this is where I keep it the key to the safe deposit box is here and I make it a conversation that we have and so it's important so that way when something happens like when my dad died we scrounged he had a book but he also had stuff all over the place and we couldn't find it right and mom and I were hysterical and we're crying and we're going through his folders and uh, we couldn't find stuff. So that adds to the trauma that people have after somebody dies. And so having it organized and talking about it and knowing that when I go, you know, my kids can come to my pink death file. It's interesting that you say that because when I interviewed Judy, Brooke's mom, Judy was very good at talking to her daughter, Brooke, about everything that she wanted at her funeral. I want this, I want this, I want this. And they would joke, um, Brooke would say, um, mom, when you get to heaven, don't name my children because she had had two die uh, with miscarriages. And so it was just thought of that that's the way it was going to be. And Brooke knew exactly how Judy wanted her funeral to be. And then Brooke's the one that died. Mm-hmm. And Judy's the one that had to plan the funeral. So it doesn't always go in the right order. And it almost would be interesting to think about, you know, you going through all of that, showing your kids what you want, and then even having that conversation the other way. Exactly. And what if you die first? What would you want me to do for you? Because even though they're in their 20s and 30s, horrible, tragic things happen to people in their 20s and 30s. And then their parents have to be the ones or their spouses have to be the ones. So this is not something that you just start talking about in your 50s and 60s and 70s, really. If you want to address this death in that in the kind of right way that it's a part of life, then it can be a conversation from much, much younger, a much, much younger age. No, I think that's beautifully said. And thank you for the reminder, because we tend to just think that everything happens in this, you know, age related and obviously for for yourself and, and for others who have lost, you know, lost children or the order has not been what you would expect it to be, quote unquote. Yeah, you have to have those conversations. And I think you put an important thought in my mind about sitting down now with my kids and saying, okay, now if something happens to you, you should also have one. And um, I think that's a really, really important point. So thank you for sharing that. It's going to put a thought into my head too. That Yeah, when you get out your folder and I mean, it can honestly be a folder for things that you want done after you die. And then a whole different page can be that when you had had that conversation with your kids, that way is notes for yourself. If things end up not going the way they're quote supposed to go and Mm -hmm. one of your children dies first, then you can get out that folder because goodness, you won't have the mind to be able to deal with that at the time. I know I didn't, you know, you just can't, you're just in a fog, especially when it's such a shocking out of the blue thing like a tragic accident or sudden sudden illness that's a that's a really really important point and so thank you for making that well i just really appreciate you opening my eyes up to what 
Reiki is and how that can be a part of the toolbox. We need to have a big toolbox with a lot of different modalities. And hopefully this is something that my listeners can turn to or just be more open about if they have friends and loved ones who use this as well. And I think I think the nice thing about Reiki is you don't need any fancy, you just use your hands. <laughs> Putting your hands over your heart, you know, and sending loving energy to your heart is really practicing Reiki. It's not like you have to have some big expensive fancy things that you drag around with you. I mean, your hands hopefully are always there. And, and, and so it makes it very simple and almost something that you do. And I found that's what I did without thinking about it. I just automatically, you know, would put my hands over my heart or over my stomach or whatever it was. That's a very simple thing. And, and when you're in the middle of your grief, you, you need things that are simple. And so Reiki is definitely something that is simple to use. Well, thanks again for agreeing to be on. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.